scripture reading tonight is from John 1, verses 6 through 8, and verses 19 through 28. John 1, 6 through 8, 19 through 28. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Skipping to 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. This is the word of the Lord. I had the uh, privilege this spring, or actually last fall, to sit in on several of CARMS, that's the Knoxville Area Rescue Mission's launch point uh, Sessions. Now, Launch Point is a, is a very interesting program over there. Bert Rosen and the CARM people realized, you know, we're, we're just feeding people, but we're not getting them where they need to go. Let's create a month-long program where we invest in them, give them the resources they need to get into housing and jobs. And so they started that a few years ago. Now they're realizing they need even more, and they're going to expand it, thanks to all of you that uh, had a Christmas party for them this past week. Well, I was over there because I'm interested in writing a story next year about uh, a man in the program as he works his way out of homelessness into housing and hopefully being a productive spiritual leader in our community. Well, I walked in and I, and I met a guy named Judge Pippin. That really is his name. Um, I'm not sure uh, why his mom did that to him, but that's his name, um, Judge Pippin. And Judge freely shares his testimony, and so I, 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 don't, I think I can share it here. He, he's been very public about it. But Judge uh, was a pastor who suffered with a sexual addiction, uh, destroyed his marriage, destroyed his ministry, wound up in uh, Kentucky at a uh, uh, retreat for um, recovery, spent a number of months there, and over many years now has been working his way back uh, and, and God has redeemed him in many ways, uh, restored his marriage, given a wonderful ministry over at CARM. And before I knew all of that, I, I was watching Judge stand up before these folks, and, and, and I just kept thinking, this guy is so like Jesus. Uh, just the way he related to them, the way he spoke, I, I just kept thinking, this guy shows people Jesus. He's a witness to Jesus. Of course, that's what we all want to be. That's what we want others to think about us when they spend time with us or talk with us or hang out with us. There ought to be this 
aroma of Jesus uh, about us. Because we're all supposed to be witnesses for Jesus. Jesus will say in uh, Acts 1.8 to the disciples, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. Now, what is, uh, does a good witness for Christ look like? What are the characteristics of an effective witness? Well, John provides us with a bit of a model here. And let's, let's look at his story. It, it starts out, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. The word is martyrio. Uh, we get our word martyr from it. It was a legal word used in the court system, and it talked about bringing personal testimony to bear in a courtroom to, on behalf of a defendant. Now, the Gospel of John is set up like a cosmic uh, court trial, where Jesus is on trial. And all through the Gospel of John, you, you see a court case. That's why you see this witness come up again and again and again. Because many will testify against Jesus. They will witness against him as if the prosecutor would bring them into the bar and, and say, this is why Jesus isn't who he says he is. And then God will bring forth witness after witness who says, no, 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 this is who Jesus is. And John is the first witness. Um, Jesus will will minister powerfully to the Samaritan woman at the well. And, and then we'll read, Many Samaritans from that town believe because of the woman's witness. And then Jesus will heal a, a crippled man by the pool, and he'll say, The very works that I'm doing bear witness about me. And Lazarus will be raised from the dead, and we'll read, The crowd that had been with him when Lazarus was raised out of the tomb continued to bear witness. And, and, and this will happen again and again and again. John will call forth this witness and that witness and this witness. And then he ends his gospel. He says um, that he's saying all these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this is God's plan. He sends you and I into the world to bear witness. And the reason why is because the whole world is in a cosmic court case where, the, where the, the opposition to Christ is sending out witnesses that are saying he's not the Son of God and God is calling you into the dock so that you can say he is. We're his witnesses. And that's the only way people come to know him, is through you. But what does what an effective witness look like? Well, John the Baptist provides uh, in a, an example. And, and I think, the more I read it this week, I think we can make it real simple. And I'll uh, kind of lay out where I'm going here at the, begin, at the beginning. Two principles about being an effective witness. Know who you're not. Be who you are. If we can get that down, know who you're not. Be who you are. We can get those two principles down. We'll be a witness for Christ. Let's look at the first one. Know who you are not. Uh, the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Uh, Jerusalem in this gospel is always the headquarters of the prosecution. They're always sending emissaries out to counter witness to Christ. And in this case, they send some lower level religious leaders out responsible for orthodoxy 
uh, to find out why John is rattling the crowds like he is. And they challenge him, and then they ask him, who do you think you are? Who are you? What gives you the right to witness like this? And I think there's a principle even there that whenever you're faithfully bearing witness to Christ, there will be some measure of opposition, some measure of resistance. There's a reason why the Christians started, uh, that died for their faith were called marturia, wit- martyrs. It's because that's the price that many paid for being a witness. Well, he confessed, but he did not deny. He confessed, I am not the Christ. He knows who he is not. He is not the Christ. He is not the Messiah. And he tells them. And so they ask him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? There, there was a belief based on a prophecy in Malachi that, that just before the Messiah would return, the prophet Elijah would come as a forerunner to him. And John says, nope, I'm not, I'm not Elijah. And then they say, are you the prophet? And there they're referring to a, a passage in Deuteronomy 18 where there's a reference to one like Moses who would be a great prophet who would come at the end times. And, and uh, John says, nope, nope, I'm not the prophet either. He knows who he's not. One of the reasons that I, I think I, I saw Jesus so clearly in Judge Pippin is that he just seemed to know who he wasn't. He was not trying to be somebody that God hadn't created him to be. He wasn't trying to fulfill a role God didn't make him to fulfill. He wasn't faking anything. It just He wasn't trying to be who he was not. And I think authenticity is such a powerful witness. You know, Sometimes we think, you know, I've got to look a certain way. I've got to be like that person. I've got to be at a certain level in order to witness. When the reality is, that as you are vulnerable and authentic in your own journey, and when you are who you are, that is when you are most attractive for Christ. And I think one of the reasons that our lives often don't bear witness to Christ with clarity and power is because we all have this tendency to be who we are not. We don't live in the world in an authentic way. We, we project to the world, a myriad of personalities that we think the world wants to see. We compare. We contrast. We look at this godly person or that godly writer or this godly singer and we think that's what it looks like. That parent is what it needs to look like. And we try to be like them. And God hasn't called us to be like them. We compare and we contrast and we judge and we evaluate and we stack up and we feel insecure and we wonder why we don't look like Jesus. May Sarton, a writer, wrote about her own journey towards authenticity in a poem called Now I Become Myself. And here's how it begins. Now I become myself. It's taken time, many years and places. I've been dissolved and shaken, worn other people's When we wear other people's faces, when we are trying to be who the church tells us to be, who our mom tells us to be, who our roommate tells us to be, who, who the, whatever, 
we're not an authentic witness. Thomas Merton, the great Catholic writer, he called this putting on a false self. And I'll, I'll read a pair. Merton's usually not a good person to read because um, I have to read him about five times to understand him. But this is a paragraph from New Seeds of Contemplation, and I've returned to it many times over the years. He says, every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self. My false and private self is the one who wants to exist outside the reach of God's will and God's love, outside of reality and outside of life. And such a self cannot help but be an illusion. We are not very good at recognizing illusions, least of all the ones we cherish most about ourselves. A life devoted to maintaining and expanding this false self, this shadow, is what is called a life of sin. To be a saint means to be my true self. Therefore, the problem of sanctity and salvation is in fact the problem of finding out who I truly am. And I'm discovering my true self, my essence or my core. You may be familiar with that, that Old Testament story about David when he was young and he was just starting to be called into battle and there was this great warrior Saul that he wanted to be like. And so Saul put him in his armor and David got out there and he couldn't fight because he was wearing armor that was built for somebody else but not for him. And, and it just strikes me that's such a powerful metaphor for how many of us go through life is that we're wearing somebody else's armor. We're We're wearing somebody else's clothes. We're we're living somebody else's script. And it's no wonder there's no power when we live that way. You know, when I look back over my life, when when I've made the biggest messes, it's when I've tried to be who I was not. And usually it's gone like this. I would see a need, an unmet need, given my profession it was in the church. And I'd look at that need and I'd watch it go unmet and I would start to become afraid and anxious and worried about that need going unmet. And I'd pray and I'd ask and I'd watch the need continue to go unmet. And and then I would say, doggone it, I'm going to meet it myself. And inevitably... I'd make a bigger mess. When we are who we are not, when we play roles we weren't meant to fulfill, we create big messes. Now, there's a kind of a, a strange footnote to this story I'll just briefly comment on. You've seen that they say, John, are you Elijah? And John, very clear, no. I'm not Elijah. Well, if you're familiar with the Gospels at all, and Matthew and Mark, a few years later, people come up to him and say, who's John the Baptist? And Jesus says, he's Elijah. And, and I'm not sure I fully understand what that means, but I think it's interesting that you know, Jesus said John was the greatest person that ever lived. And even John doesn't fully understand how Jesus sees him. It's so easy to miss that, isn't it? Even the greatest man that ever lived 
didn't understand how Jesus saw him. And I'm probably speculating here, but one of the other puzzling things about John's life to me, you know, he, he's, he's peaking. It's such a great crescendo. He's got all the right answers. The Gospel of John lays out these wonderful things he does the first week of his public ministry, preparing the way of the Lord. And then uh, a few months later, he's in prison. He's about to die, and he kind of loses his faith. And he sends some messengers back to Jesus saying, are you, the, are you really the right one? He's despairing. We don't like our stories in that way. And I'm just speculating here, but I wonder if one of the reasons why John got so discouraged later in his life was he never really understood who Jesus saw him to be. It strikes me that, that when you get discouraged, when I get discouraged, it's when we've, we've forgotten who Jesus sees us to be. So that's the first principle we find here about being a, an effective witness for Christ. Know who you're not. Stop trying to be somebody you're not. Well, the second principle is be who you are. So he's not the Christ, he's not Elijah, he's not the prophet, so they want to know who is he. And he says, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet said. He's quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3. And in that great passage, God is comforting the, the people of Israel who've long been in exile. And he, he's saying, uh, I'm now going to prepare the way for Yahweh to come back and reign in Jerusalem. And now, 600 years later, John has the same calling. He's preparing the way for Jesus to reign. He says, I know exactly why I'm here. And, and I wish we knew more about John the Baptist. Uh, we know that his parents were active in the temple, that he comes from a priestly clan. Some people think he grew up in the Qumran community, which is down on the northeast shore of the Dead Sea. It's where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls. That would make sense. It was just a few miles away. Uh, he dressed, I don't mean this as a joke. He dressed the way they dressed. They were uh, very ascetic. It was a monastic community. They uh, ate goofy things like locusts. And so he probably did grow up in that community. But he's broken away from that community now. And somewhere in the desert, and, and this is a real desert. This is about as rugged a desert as we have anywhere in America. And this is where the guy lives. Somewhere in all these years in the desert, he figures out who he is. And he finds a prophecy in Isaiah 40, and he knows that's exactly what he came to fulfill. Then they ask him, well, why are you baptizing? Because he didn't have the right, right authority. And he says, well, I baptize with water. I'm just doing a human baptism. But among you stands one who you don't know, even though he comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to tie. Uh, in, in those days, slaves, slaves were the ones that undid a person's sandal. And, and John says, I am so inferior to Christ. Christ is so much greater than me that I, I can't even do the work of a slave. In his presence. So he knows his lines. He walks onto the stage of redemptive history out of the desert at just the right time, just the right place. John will say this happens at Bethany across the Jordan. There's a place, a time, a word. He knows it all. He has been in the wilderness. He's been in a community that studied the scriptures most likely. And if not, he certainly studied them by himself. He knows where he fits in the story. He's just got this 
serenity and and confidence. He's wearing his own face. He's living out of his true self. Now, he was the the last great prophet of the Old Covenant. So if we were to to use the language of the New Covenant, the age of the Spirit, to describe a similar phenomenon, we'd have some fresh metaphors. Uh, We we would talk about um, abiding in Christ. Uh, we talk about walking in the Spirit. We, we talk about allowing Christ to live through us. We talk about living by faith. We talk about releasing the life of Christ within us. And, and, and whatever the metaphor is, the idea is when you are who you were created to be in Christ, you will witness. You won't be able to help it. You won't have to do it on Wednesday nights between 7 and 9. It will just happen in your life, wherever you are. Because that's who you are. We don't have to force this. We don't have to work this up. If you know who you are in Christ, if you know what He's doing in your life, if you're centered in Christ and and, and, and embedded in Christ and His life has has a hold of yours, you will witness. And you won't even know it. You won't even know it. Now, how do you get to that point of of that serenity, that confidence? I I don't know. The Bible doesn't really say, but I suspect it has something to do with the wilderness. I suspect one of the ways you get to that point of knowing who you are so firmly and clearly that you're an effective witness, I can't imagine you being able to do that without going through the wilderness. That seems to be part of God's plan. Well, Advent is a time when we prepare the way for Jesus Christ. And on the third week of Advent, we remember John the Baptist who prepared the way by witnessing to the light. The way we can become an effective witness is to know who you're not and be who you are. Let's pray.